One of the great privileges we have as Christians and great joys is that we have opportunities to tell those who are not Christians about Jesus and what he did and what the right response is to Jesus, that it's trusting in him, believing in him. It is indeed a privilege for us. It's a joy that we get to tell people about something good. Uh, it's an act of love. It's an act of kindness. Uh, you're actually telling them something that they need to know. You're telling them something that will affect their lives forever. Um, it's not always fun to do. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's complicated. Sometimes there's conflict involved. But regardless, it is a, it is a good thing that we get to do, and it is, it is a Christian joy. By way of introduction, I might even ask you to think about one of the one of those times where you've been able to tell someone about Jesus. Uh, maybe think of a time when it was the most pleasurable, when it was when it was easy. Perhaps uh, this doesn't this hasn't happened to me very many times, but think of a time when someone came to you and said, "Would you please tell me about Jesus?" Maybe that's never happened to you. It's exciting, though. If it's even something close to that, you think, this is wonderful. And, and we tend to make it harder than it needs to be. I'll never forget the time when just out of the blue, it seemed, someone I had built a friendship with, and out of the blue, this is someone who no, had never been in a church his whole life, from a different culture, different background, knew nothing. The Bible has two testaments. What's a testament, you know? And it, and he, he said, how can I join your church? And as soon as I picked my jaw up off the ground, I said, we should meet. <laughs> we should talk. Because <laughs> I wanted to explain who Jesus was first, right? But it was, it was like he was asking me that, right? Can you please explain who Jesus is to me? And I'll tell you what, I, I dropped everything. I, I would have done just about anything for that opportunity and to sit down with him and to talk to him about who Jesus is, who Jesus is, what he's done, and what the right response is to him. It's awesome. It's, I wish it was always like that, right? I wish I had a hundred of those stories. Maybe you do. Now I want you to imagine what it would be like in your scenario where it was easy and exciting, or in my scenario, if you need to borrow, it's fine, I'll, I'll, I'll share. What it would be like if your response was to ignore the person. Someone says, would you please tell me who Jesus is and what he did and what my response to him should be? Imagine then to turn your back and walk the other direction and ignore the request. If nothing else, it would be bizarre, right? I don't recommend it. There would, there would need to be some explaining. There would, there, would, there would be lots of questions as to why did you just do that? This morning in John 12, essentially, that's what we're going to see Jesus do. It's bizarre. There's explanation, but it is intriguing. It is interesting. It gets your attention. So what we're going to do this morning is begin, we won't finish, we're going to begin looking at the 12th chapter of the Gospel according to John, verses 20 to 50, 
And we're going to see Jesus do what is puzzling, very puzzling. So if you want to join me, I'll give you an outline in a moment. But let's go ahead and get, get started. Beginning in verse 20 of the 12th chapter of the Gospel according to John, it says this. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast, the feast of Passover, the major Jewish holiday, were some Greeks, non-Jews, Gentiles. By now that, that title is used generically. Okay? Greek culture had so influenced that area of the world and the language and the customs and the religion and the culture that it's, it's likely just here generic. They're, they're Gentiles. Jew, or excuse me, Gentile and Greek can be used interchangeably. They're non-Jews in other words. But they're interested in God, the one true God. So they come to Passover. They come to Jerusalem. And then we read in verse 21, so these came to Philip, one of the disciples, who has a Greek name, by the way, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Not just as in see, that the meaning is, we wish, we wish to meet Jesus. We, we, we wish to see Jesus and interview him. We have questions. Okay? We want, we want to know who, who he claims to be. We want to know what he's up to. We want to understand. Okay? This is what I was likening to that experience that we have when people say, would you please tell me who Jesus is and what he's done and what the right response is? They, they, they want to have a personal meeting. They want to interview Jesus. They want to know more. Then 22 says, Philip went and told Andrew, again, another one with a Greek name. Maybe that's why they went to Philip and Andrew. I don't know. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And we're going to see this morning that Jesus ignores the request. Kind of. He doesn't give them an interview. And that's ignoring the request. Pretty wild, huh? But he doesn't ignore them altogether. Because what he does is, he goes on to explain to his disciples, all the more with great clarity, who he is. Okay? And he does so, so that they can tell. Okay? So that, that he's going to equip them. It's, it's interesting that Jesus doesn't go to them. And we're going to see it's because Jesus is going to say his hour has come. If Jesus by now grants everyone an interview, he'll never, never go to the cross. But he does wonderfully, though he ignores those Gentiles, he wonderfully explains to his followers all the more and with all the more clarity who he is. And we're getting ahead of ourselves now, but you, you know kind of what ends up happening when we have the book of Acts happening and we have the gospel going to the Jews and then we have it going to the Greeks and to the Gentiles. Paul says, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Right now, Jesus is fo focusing on the Jews. But it is fascinating that he ignores them. That's why I said, I don't recommend it. We're not Jesus. <laughs> It's not our prerogative to do that. And he doesn't ignore them entirely. Before we actually jump into it, uh, by the way, by way of outline, um, a dozen or so realities. Um, we'll do maybe, I have, I have seven ready for today, okay? 
um, realities about Jesus that help us to see him. Okay, you want to see Jesus? We're going to see who Jesus really is as he would explain himself, rightly interpreted. Remember, he came to interpret God to us, chapter 1, verse 18. So we're going to see Jesus today, but we're going to see him not with our eyes, but through his explanation regarding who he is. So 15, 12, I don't know, we'll see realities about Jesus that help us to see him for who he truly is. One thing I find fascinating about the Bible, and I bring it up now and then, the gospel accounts, they they describe, which is important, they describe history, but Jesus also has the microphone, so to speak. And Jesus interprets, he explains, and that's what he's doing here. So it's not up to us to determine, to interpret what is meant. It's wonderful that he explains. Otherwise, we're going to say, he's just a prophet. He's a good teacher. He's a miracle worker. No, he's going to interpret so that we can know, so that we can see him for who he really is. Now, before we get to these uh, first seven, at least, let's at least go back for a moment to verse 21, where it ends with that, that request. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. I just can't help but pause and say, isn't that a good request? It's awesome. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. I've seen that on placards, affixed to pulpits. And if you're going to put any kind of plaque on your pulpit, I think that's a great one. Sir, preacher, the congregation is saying, we wish to see Jesus. I love that. By the way, That's what I seek to do every week because whether people are asking or not, I know that that's what they need. I know you need to see Jesus for who he says he is and who he really is because that's where your only hope can be found. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. It's a great, 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 great request. I love the request. If I thought it wasn't going to look super dopey and silly like some sort of cheap trophy I wanted up here on this pulpit, that every time I or anyone stand here to proclaim the Bible, it wouldn't be about you. Ultimately, it would be about him uh, and, and his explanation. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Christian preachers, we wish to see Jesus. Number one, here we go. Jesus is the Son of Man. Jesus is the Son of Man. And in verse 23, Jesus responds and he says, And Jesus answered them. He's talking to the disciples, not the, the Greeks. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I'm not going to go talk to them because the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And I at least want us to pause. We don't have to pause for long to say, He's the Son of Man. This is interpretive, okay? This is, a, this is a, an interpretation of who he is. He's not just the guy who was born in a, in a stable in Bethlehem. He's not just the guy who grew up in Nazareth. He's not just the, the son of Mary and Joseph. No, he is the son of man. It's a huge declaration. And if you look at Daniel and Daniel chapter 7, you'll see that this is a huge declaration. For him to say, I am the son of man... 
is for him to say, and I'm going to read Daniel in a second. You can look it up if you'd like to. This is, this is a huge claim. It's to say, I'm the one. I'm the one who was long before prophesied. I am the one, how about this, who will rule and reign and provide for his subjects, those in his kingdom, forever. I am the one who is king, not just of Israel. I am the one who is the king of the world. All nations. I'm the one you've been waiting for. As I like to say, even if you didn't know you were waiting for me. He's saying, I am the long anticipated one who will rule and reign. Oh, by the way, if you rule and reign forever, that means you have to be eternal. I'm him. I'm the one, son of man. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. That's what it comes from. And he came to the ancient of days, the father, and was presented before him. So the son is presented before the father, and to him, the son, was given dominion, ah, kingdom terminology, and glory, he's royal, and a kingdom, it's spelled out there for us, that all peoples, it's not just a Jewish kind of savior, all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. They're his subjects. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. This matters to you. This matters to you even if you don't think it matters to you. It matters to you because we're talking about the one that all of human history has been waiting for. We're talking about the one who rules and reigns forever. He, he's the one as a king should, if he's a good king, provide and take care of and protect. He's that one, the son of man, his hour. Extraordinary is the one who's the son of man. Think about all of the, the kings and queens, and since we're not used to that, all the leaders and all the politicians and political parties and influential people and significant people, and think about how, even if, as good as the best ones are, how they die. And how they fail. And how they crash and burn. And, and, and we, we end up calling them functional saviors. And they always, 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 no matter what, no matter how good they are, they let you down. And Jesus is the son of man, the forever ruling, reigning, providing, taking care of, protecting one. And again, I, I say this too often because it comes up so often, but it's not talking about his humanity. I'm not saying it's denying his humanity. We're going to see his humanity in our text. But let's go to a different text for that, a different passage. Let's go, let's go to Hebrews chapter 2. Let's go to even later in our passage. Son of man, that's the Daniel one. He's got to be more than a human being to rule and reign forever. He's that one. Jesus is the Son of Man. Let's move on. Uh, let's also in verse 23, but let's see that he's the man of the hour. 
He's the man of the hour like no one has ever been the man of the hour. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He's the man of the hour in the sense that this is his hour. This is his specific time. And Jesus has been talking in these terms about the hour. My hour has not yet come. The hour. My hour. And here it's the hour. My hour is here. My time is here. And what's so interesting is if it's his hour that is here, it's the hour of all hours. This is the hour that the world has been waiting for, even if the world didn't know it was waiting for it. This is it. This is, this is all of human history, all of redemptive history that's been moving toward this. Jesus himself is the one that said, Moses spoke of me. Okay? Isaiah speaks of him. Moses speaks of him. All the types and shadows anticipate him. And now here he's the substance, the hour. This is the hour of all hours. This isn't 15 minutes of fame. Jesus isn't the reason for the season. Jesus is the reason. For everything, it's all been building toward this. He's that one. My hour, my hour has come. Just a sneak peek ahead, just for a moment to verse 27. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. He is the... The, the one who is the great mediator of the new covenant that we've been anticipating and waiting for. He, he's that one. He's not going to back down from it. It's, it's his time. It makes me want to say to you, again, this, 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 is, this is everything. Why should I care about that? Well, it's the most extraordinary, significant, important event ever. And will be forever. I was listening to a lecture this week someone passed on to me, and it was about American history, and there was a bit, a portion of the lecture about Benjamin Franklin. And I was, I was amazed. I just thought, I'd like, to, I'd like to read more about Benjamin Franklin. I mean, the list was long of all of his accomplishments and all of these extraordinary things that he did, I thought, I've got to read some good biographies about Benjamin Franklin. This, this is, su he's su pretty amazing. I felt stupid, you know? I was like, I, I guess I, I think I'd heard all of these things before, but all put together, it was like I thought there were 27 Benjamin Franklins. I mean, I was just, it was one of these moments, you know? You're like a little kid, you don't know anything. Benjamin Franklin was a chump in comparison to what I should be motivated to learn about. It's the hour. The hour that had been determined in eternity past has now come and is a reality and it's going to be for redemption for sinners like you and like me. So it's not just about him and the Father and the Spirit, though it certainly is, but it's also to benefit us. The greatest act in all of human history, and, and it's actually to, to our benefit. It's exciting. Man of destiny, like no one's been a man of destiny. I was trying to think about what, what would this be like? And you've got the Father and you've got the Son and this plan, this purpose, and He talks about it being a purpose. 
And it's going to happen. So different than, than the reality I live in. One thing the father never said to this son was, Good luck, son. It's going to happen. It's always been that way, and it does. And if you're a Christian, you're trusting in the one who came to his hour according to perfect timing. And by the way, it's for your benefit too. Why wouldn't I trust him now for timing? It's pretty special. According to precise decree, that's who Jesus is. Show me Jesus. Jesus is the one who had an hour. And he's going to do what he said he was going to do. How about another one? Jesus is the one. You want to see Jesus? Jesus is to be glorified. He's to be glorified. There's irony in this again. In verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He's going to go on in the next verse to talk about his death, so we know that that's what he's talking about. And here we are with irony again. Because what does it mean? The Son of Man is, you want to see Jesus? He's the one who's going to be glorified. What does it mean to be glorified? To, to, to glorify something is to give it a lot of attention. Sometimes we might say, well, we don't like that movie because it glorifies violence. Or it glorifies crime. or what? It gives it all of this attention and it makes it look good. When it comes to God, He is good and does good, and so He should get all of this attention because He's God, okay? He's to be glorified. This is why sometimes we would talk, uh, in an ancient world, they would talk about uh, adorning, right? If you're the royal one, you would be brought gifts and have a special uh, cloak, a special robe to adorn, to glorify the king because the king is great or the queen is great. Well, here Jesus is the great one. He is the son of man who has an hour and he says, I'm going to be glorified. I'm going to be treated with greatness because I'm great. He's to be glorified, but we know he's actually talking about being lifted up, glorified on a cross. So the irony is there. Although then he'll be lifted up from the grave, so it's taken away. But he's the one to be glorified. Isaiah 52, 13, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, Having gone through the, the crucifixion and the suffering and death, name which is above every name, glorified because of the humiliation, because of the suffering. Now let's go to the next verse. We're not, we're, we're, we've got to speed it up a little bit. Verse 24, and then we'll look uh, and draw some conclusions. Verse 24 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, this is Jesus speaking, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, so he was talking about death, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Please see Jesus as the great fruit bearer. 
Yes, Christians are supposed to bear fruit. We'll get to that in chapter 15. Stop taking glory from Jesus for a moment, would you? <laughs> I think he's talking about himself. I, I, I'm going to be lifted up. I'm going to die, but, but I must die because if I die, it's like the agricultural picture and the, 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 the grain, the piece of grain goes and it goes to the ground. Yes, it's lost. But the result is much fruit as produced as a result of that loss. Jesus is going to be the great Savior who's going to save people from every tribe, tongue, nation, all across the planet. He, He is the great fruit bearer. Yes, this is tragic. Yes, this is terrible what's about to happen to the Son of Man. But he's the great fruit bearer because of what will come as a result of this hour, this plan. Why did he come? He came, his name is Jesus, Matthew chapter 1, because he would what? He would save his people from their sins. He would lose none of them. Back to chapter 6. This is all happening. You want to see Jesus for who he is? He is the one who brings new life. Then let's keep going. How about verse 25? Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world, and we're going to see in this world in verse 31 is, is a negative connotation. In this fallen world, in this satanically led world that he's going to defeat. I wish we could talk about that today, but we won't get to it. So that's the contrast. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. I'm on number five on my list. I don't know if you're tracking or not, but to see Jesus is to see that he is the giver of eternal life. He's the giver of eternal life. Now there's some other emphasis in that passage. And there's an emphasis on following Jesus and we want to get to that. I don't want to overlook that. But please notice before you say, oh, that's kind of stiff, that's kind of scary. Let's make sure we see the positive comforting part to begin with, okay? He's the giver of eternal life. Back to verse 25. For eternal life is the emphasis. Then there's the serving of Christ in 26, following Him. But notice the positive. Where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Oh, oh that's what we want. I want to be accepted by the Father. And how can I be accepted by the Father but to be united by the Son? If I'm with the Son, then the Father honors me. Well, I need to make sure I'm with the Son and I, and I don't stray from the Son. And, oh, he's describing that also as eternal life. That's what I want. Okay? Now, he's going to put some teeth in it and give kind of an exhortation. But let's, let's, let's see clearly first. You take the verse out of context and you might say, boy, I, I really, I'm going to have to do a lot of stuff. And for me to do a lot of stuff, then God will accept me. 
But I at least want to remind you that the, the chorus, maybe not, maybe chorus isn't the right word, but the, the resounding chorus that's been played throughout the gospel according to John, quoting Jesus is, Eternal life, eternal life, eternal life, eternal life, eternal life, eternal life, eternal life. And how do you get eternal life? By believing. By trusting in Jesus. It's not by what you do. It's by trusting in Jesus. Don't take my word for it. I'm going to go super fast. John 1, 4, in him was life. John 3, 15, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. 3, 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. 524, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. 539, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. 540, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. John 635, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. 1028, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. 1125, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And I promise I took some out. All leading up to this, eternal life is found in Jesus and what your responsibility is, is to rest in him, to trust in him, to believe in him. He's the giver of eternal life. So let's at least stop there and say, oh, this is great. You want to be with the Father? That means you're going to have eternal life. The way to do that is to be connected to Jesus. In other words, in John's gospel account, is to believe in Jesus. It is to trust in Jesus and not in yourself, not in someone else, not in something else, right? Okay, there's a long way to go just to try to get you to not take my word for it. So when we read this kind of edgy statement, we're prepared to understand it. Right now, Jesus is popular. We've had the Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And, and, and everybody loves Jesus. Well, not everybody, but generally speaking. And, and they treat him like royalty. And we've got the triumphal entry we learned about last time. But sentiment is about to switch. And the same people who are saying Hosanna are going to say, crucify him. And Jesus is preparing his disciples and preparing those who are going to hear You've got to stay attached to me. You've got to continue believing in me because the only way to eternal life is by believing in me. By application, that would apply to us as well. You can't say, well, I'm going to believe in Jesus, but when things are hard, then you don't anymore and everything's good. No, because if you're truly believing in Jesus, you're truly believing in Jesus and you're not going to leave Jesus. And there's more that we could say about it, but I at least want to say these things. You could say he's exhorting them, you continue to believe in me. Remember, I am the way to life. Regardless of what the crowds are about ready to say. Notice a couple of more things before we move on. I, I do really, don't, I don't want to miss it and I'm so thankful that it says a couple of, well, in particular that it says, in verse 26, the last sentence, if anyone serves me, just notice the breadth of it. 
It's not about your status. It's not about your education. It's not about where you are in the hierarchy of things. No, this is, this is anyone. This is for believers because it's not about you anyway. It's about me, right? If it were about us, then it couldn't be just for anyone. But if the value is actually in him because he's the source of life, then it's, it's open. It's, it's anyone. So notice the breath, but also notice something else and notice the intensity of it. In 26 earlier, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. Do notice he must follow me. It, and it's, it's an imperative. It's a command. So we need to observe eternal life is tied to Jesus. He'll, he'll put a point on this in John 14, 6. We know that passage probably better than this one. But with all the functional saviors that the world is going to offer you, oh, and by the way, be sure to convey this to the Greeks when I'm gone, who love their gods. To be accepted by the Father, to be honored by the Father, it must be through me. Okay, let's move on. How about verse 27? Now, is my soul troubled? And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. I think that's the right way to read that as it, as it comes across. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. We can look at other texts, Garden of Gethsemane texts, and it, and it, it, is, it is terrible, and it is awful, and, and there is such kinds of requests. But, but here it doesn't seem to be that. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But please notice the troubling. My soul is troubled on, on my list, number six, Jesus is the troubled one. He really, truly, genuinely is a human being. Just like us. That's the first thing to notice. It's also important to notice that He really, truly, genuinely is about to experience the most awful thing anyone could ever possibly experience. He, he's, uh, he's not an actor. There was a, a false teaching that invaded Christianity and still sometimes does called doceticism. He, he's, he's not a docetic actor just going through the motions. Sort of like a phantom. Oh yeah, I'll just check that box off. No, he really became one of us. Truly and genuinely a human being. Not only divine, yes, but truly one of us. And his soul is grieved. He is gripped. There's great turmoil internally because he's going to face the undiluted, full wrath of God that he doesn't deserve, but it does tell us something about what we do deserve. He's, he's, he's the troubled one. The terribleness of sin, the awfulness of wrath. Sometimes I have nightmares 
about injustices. Perhaps you do too. You know, this, this terrible, terrible thing is happening and it's not right. False accusation. If people don't know the facts and corruption, and I don't know, I, I don't know I, what I do to have these weird dreams, but it's just terrible. You know, and, and, and you want to wake up and then you wake up and it's still happening, but you're not really awake. It's just in your dream. And we have rubber walls in, in our bedroom just because <laughs> padding. It's like my worst thing. This isn't a worse nightmare. This is a worse reality. It's the hour. He's the troubled one. Show me Jesus. Yeah, who I will show you and who you would show to others is who one who's just like us. Though sinless and about to face terrible, terrible, terrible condemnation. You might want to write down Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. It's a good cross-reference. Hebrews 5, 7. In the days of his flesh, when Jesus was here on earth, is what it's talking about. Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save, from, save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. But he wasn't saved from the cross, immediacy of death. He was saved from the ultimate through resurrection because he didn't deserve it. Let's do one more. Also from that same text, 27 and 28. Number seven on my list, Jesus is the obedient son. Jesus is the obedient son. We definitely can conclude that from verses 27 and 28. Right? What, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your, glorify your name. It's great when sons obey. He is the obedient son. Adam... And Luke's gospel is called a son. He's not an obedient son. Hosea 11 says Israel is God's son. Not an obedient son. Jesus is the obedient son. He is going to hear from his father what Israel could have never heard, what Adam could have never heard. He's already been told this by his father, by the way. This is my son. My ultimate son. The one you've been waiting for, son, who has an hour. And with him I'm pleased. He's the one. He's the one we were waiting for. Glorify your name, Father. And you should know, and I should know, that if you believe in Jesus, you are united to the obedient Son. Hebrews chapter 2 refers to him as our older brother. I had a great older brother. He took a lot of stuff for me. Bully in the neighborhood, my brother would go. 
I remember one time my brother went down the street because Ray Petty was being mean to me. We'll just call him Ray Petty because that was his name. <laughs> he was older and tougher. My brother went down there because Ray Petty was throwing snowballs at me or something. My brother went down there nine years older and he stood up for me. And then I remember when Ray Petty's mom came out. And she said, why don't you pick on someone your own size, you bully? And my brother said, why don't you come out of the house? Yeah! <laughs> Thankfully, my brother was converted. Uh, <laughs> where were we? <laughs> Jesus is our elder brother, spiritually speaking. And the Father is perfectly pleased with his son, Jesus. Okay? Because he is the obedient son. And so it becomes rather wonderful in 1 Peter, where 1 Peter talks about Jesus and us, believers, that Jesus, the perfect son, the just, the righteous, the obedient son, for in place of the unjust, the unrighteous, the disobedient children, so that he, our elder brother in the faith, could bring us to God. That fits our text. You want to be honored by the Father? In the words of Jesus, the way to be honored by the Father is to be attached to the Son. It's awesome. It's awesome. So Jesus ignores the Greeks, but he doesn't really ignore the Greeks, okay? We're going to see it unfold, and we're going to see even more true things about Jesus, but we want to see Jesus and not be left to our imaginations when it comes to meaning. We want to see Jesus and hear from him who he really is, and I think that we're on to that even in looking at this text. I hope you're encouraged. Hope you're blessed by it as I am. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he was faithful to you and he was faithful to you for us so that we might be reconciled to you through him. We're grateful for him. We're grateful for your grace shown to us. We're grateful, grateful for salvation in Christ. And we do want to take Jesus' word seriously even though we might face different pressures than first century believers. And that would be to continue to serve Christ, to continue to see him as the honorable son of man, the honorable king, the honorable one who is worthy, to not drift away from him and to see eternal life as coming from somewhere else. Remind us again that it's only found in Christ and that whatever cost may come to us, remind us that eternal life is worth it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.